0: Hi, everyone. It's Scott. This week, we're running a repeat, I believe fancy people call it an encore presentation, from September of 2020 with friend of the program, John Roa. For John, selling a startup for a fortune was only the start of his problems.
1: You know, that led to just a lot of partying and other behaviors that you know, we're, we're truly self-destructive, like towing the line of not waking up the next morning and then having to open your eyes, you know, four hours later and go be a CEO.
0: I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road.
1: Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself.
0: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. A note about this week's episode. We're going to talk frankly about some fairly adult subjects. And as part of that, there's the occasional adult word. The kind of words your kids probably know but
1: shouldn't hear. I hope you have your Powerball tickets. Good luck. Let's see how it is tonight. First number down. We have twenty-seven to lead us off. These stats around people who actually win the lottery—it's pretty haunting, right? Um, they end up either broke, or they end up divorced, or they end up dead, or like there's crazy stats.
0: That's John Roa. He's not broke, and obviously he's not dead. But he's going to tell you he came pretty close to the dead part. He's not a lottery winner. He's the Silicon Valley kind of rich. Sold his startup. Okta, to Salesforce for a lot of money. How much money? He's not legally allowed to say, but a lot. You've said it was enough to live any life you chose. That's yeah. that's a lot of
1: money. It's a lot of money, um, and, and quite literally more than I could have ever expected to have. You know, I, I grew up in a in a household that had enough money to be a family, but not to do much else, and um, it's all. Very foreign to me. <laughs> it's all brand new. This only happened, you know, five years ago. So
0: right, and I think there are people who, whether it's the lottery or something else, you know, you buy your two dollar ticket and you think to yourself, "If I had, you know, an enormous pile of money, here is what I would do." You are actually living that life.
1: Yeah, I am, and it's a weird thing to to hear you say because even when I when you say that, I kind of go, "No, I'm not," and I'm like, "Oh, I guess I am," because. It still feels foreign. it doesn't feel terribly natural to me. I still don't know what to do with my money. <laughs> I still like I've done some pretty strange things because um I've been allowed to and they've made my life you know much more interesting. but it's a very strange concept to me. I still have not reconciled with being wealthy you've described it as having too much freedom a hundred percent. I think it can be a curse. I don't think that money as a standalone object is all that interesting, but what you're able to do with it can be if you're able to get the right mindset and the right timing in your life. And I'm still working on that. I'm still trying to figure out what it means to me and how am I going to enhance the lives of people I care about in future generations through this opportunity.
0: It's interesting to catch you at this juncture in your life because when yeah. you talk to the, you know, when you talk to Bill Gates and he says, you know, I've I've done all these things I set out to do. Now I'm going to go help the world, et etc. And I've no doubt you will also help the world in some way, though maybe not as with much as much money as Bill
1: Gates. Uh, but but I wouldn't want his money, honestly, man. I wouldn't want it. You
0: know, th- there is a point in which, and and I've you know, we, I've spoken with with a number of, of wealthy individuals say the only thing worse than having a lot of money. Money is having a lot of money and nothing to do,
1: without a doubt. You know, like I said before, uh, money in isolation isn't all that interesting. It's it's just not because um, it can cause a lot of issues and problems. And for me, my my core driver in life was not having anything and kind of desperation. That's why it's why I was such a impassioned entrepreneur because I had no other means to make anything of myself. I was a horrible student. I you know I squeaked by high school with a barely passing GPA of I think two point one. I got kicked out of two schools before I graduated a third for college. Uh, you know, so I wasn't exactly going to be an academic, right? Um, I knew I could was going to struggle to have a boss or to work in a corporate job in a traditional nine to five sense. I would just fail miserably. So my only path to to have anything in my life was to be an entrepreneur. But that that drive of what brings you to do that is not having anything to fall back on. When you got a huge bank account, you don't you can go literally sit on a beach for the next 40 years and no one's going to say anything about it. That is not necessarily a good thing. You have to then reorient where your priorities come from, where your motivation comes from, where your desires come from, what actually you're impassioned to do. It's a it's a weird exercise.
0: A beach for about 40 days would be about all I could do. I <laughs> exactly. you know, I yeah. I do not, you know, am I'm, I'm certainly comfortable, but but don't have, you know, a ton of money and I have found myself experiencing at least a a little bit of what that must be like with the pandemic in the sense that, you know, there's nothing to do. Uh, You can't go out and do much of anything. Uh, And so you do feel sort of, you know, uh, work is a great motivator, but it's kind of the only motivator these days. In the yeah. sense that you know, hey, I'm really looking to afford to a vacation. No, you're not.
1: And I think that's the case for a lot of people, right? And you know, especially for me, like today, you know, I'm a single guy. I, I now live in Manhattan after being in Europe for four years, but you know, so good, good, you know, group of friends and my family, you know, my, my immediate and extended family are important to me, but like, I don't have my own family. And so that's kind of why I've fallen back into this because I did that thing. I went to an island in Greece. I'm like, I'm going to stay here. And I built a house and a beach club and a restaurant. And I was like, this is going to be my thing. And it was great. Trust me. Like I'm very glad of of
0: all the things. It's not a bad one. Trust me. it,
1: It was the best, you know, few years of my life, but there, you know, at some point you realize that you can't just do that. You can't just exist in these, like, you know, these what you consider paradise. Like, at least for me, and I'm sure some people can, but for me, it really came back to like, what is important to me? How am I going to make a difference? Is there anything you thought about doing with your money that was just silly? Well, what I just referenced in Greece was pretty silly. <laughs> I, I'm my, I was dating a girl in LA. This is 2000. 16. I had just left Salesforce. And you know, so I came off this five year journey of running this tech company that was, am I allowed to swear on your show, Scott? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. This five years was fucking insane. It was this pretty wild and traumatic journey that I had through being a 26 year old CEO, of a startup to selling it, you know, five years later to Salesforce. And in um, the journey, literally almost killed me. It was a really rough run. And so when I was working at Salesforce post-acquisition, I was also in medical recovery. And so I was getting help to bring my mind and body back to order because it was, to say the least, out of order. And um, I left Salesforce in 2016, was dating this girl, and she's like, let's go on vacation to Mykonos, Greece. I thought that sounds like a perfect place to go. And I got there. I was like, you know what? I I like this place. And instead of, I'm sure most people feel that, but instead of just taking that feeling with me and enjoying my week and leaving, I bought a, an acre of land in the most prime area of the island. And I built two homes totaling about 20,000 square feet and 14 rooms. So you want to talk about something kind of silly or ridiculous to do, that would be it. I've got one that I think would be sillier. <laughs> Tell
0: me. You ready? All right, here's what I would do with a lot of money. I've been thinking about this actually quite a bit. So I need a lot of money <laughs> to make this happen. I want to rent a storefront in a shabby uh, uh, strip mall and just put out front in, you know, just a, a, a terrible, you know, vinyl lettering problem solved. And then there would just be a desk and two chairs. And eventually somebody would walk in and they would say, okay, well, here's my problem. I'd be like, well, hold on, let me solve that. You need that? <laughs> <laughs> your car doesn't work, go down to the Ford dealership, get yourself another car. And I just, you know, continued to do this until word got out and then there'd be a line, right? That's that's my plan for all the
1: money. I like that. <laughs> I, I wonder, like, you know, it's so fun to think about. It was always fun for me of like, what would you do if, you know, because the the sense of having money, especially like fuck off money, was never, it was always a fantasy to me. Right. And, and I wonder, and I'm not really sure what my answer to the question would have been you know let's say 10 years ago or 15 years ago it certainly wouldn't have been to build a mansion on an island in greece that that just you know was not ever in the cards um, but i do wonder how many of us would actually pursue that fantasy that we have like that one you just said like it's it i wonder if you'd actually do that i wonder if you asked the next person if they're like i'd go and save animals in south america for the next 10 years like would they actually do that if would if they, they actually do it or would they just
0: bucks, be paralyzed yeah.
1: yeah exactly because I've known, as you have, a lot of people who either come from or have acquired incredible levels of means, and people seem to never do what they think they're going to do, and people get very confused once they, when they go through that transition.
0: Really, literally, you are living the, if you could do anything without the fear of failure, yeah, what would you do? You're actually, I mean, that's what you know parents say to kids, but you're actually living that.
1: Yeah, but I'll tell you, the fear of failure does not go away, at least not for me. Um and what do you define as failure is the other interesting well, question. Well, exactly? Cuz I I might not have a fear of like financial failure, right? It it'd be it'd be pretty egregious to consider how I could like blow my money or become like bankrupt or broke, right? That would be that would take a strong act of, of, of <laughs> idiocy to get there, but with that said, there's a million other ways I can fail, right I can still fail in life, I can fail at being a good person, I can fail at keeping myself healthy and balanced and moving forward in life like I did before. I could fail at being a good brother son, you know friend. Um, so I think there's still you know a lot of I could start a business that I, that I think is brilliant and it could crash and burn right that happens all the time. So I think there's still all sorts of ways to fail. And I and I think it, you used a great word earlier, which was paralyzing. I think that that's a really important piece of this because I think you, you can get really stuck with trying to figure out what you're going to do next, how you're going to do it, why you're going to do it, which is a new question, right? The old question was just like, well, I need, need to make money. <laughs> I can't eat, you know? Right. This and this and now it's like, morning. Now it's like you know you got to totally reorient that, but then there is still a very significant sense or fear of failure, at least for me. Maybe even sometimes more significant because now you're supposed to succeed, right? Now you're rich. Now you've you have all the tools at your disposal, right? So now if you fail, you can't be like, well, you know, I couldn't get this thing moving. I couldn't raise the funding. Now you know it's like when I wrote my book. I wrote this thing, and I was like. If if every publisher in the world tells me this story's shit, <laughs> it's not going to look very good. You know what I mean? Like, and if I had written a book as this is a weird way to say it, but like as a nobody, right? Then you can you can be like, well, no one, you know, I'm not big enough to get it out there, whatever. If you are, you know, in a situation where you have access and means and support and networks and whatever, and you can't get a book sold, to me, it's a lot bigger of a failure. And so I think there's actually a, a, just a redefined fear of that with where I'm at today.
0: With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: What's up, everyone? This is John Roa. And you may be wondering to yourself, who the hell is John Roa and why does he have a podcast named after him?
0: Where John is at today is a radio show and podcast. Everybody has a podcast these days, right? Plus a book documenting the rougher parts of his life called a practical way to get rich and die trying and die trying. Why the and die? Trying.
1: <laughs> well, uh, it was a pretty rough run. Um, and you know the the reason that I, I called it that was obviously because I think there's so much romanticism around entrepreneurship today, and frankly, too much romanticism around it. And for some reason, you know, entrepreneurship went from being something that was highly utilitarian, you know, 100 years ago, to something that's become like in vogue and almost like has a celebrity to it, right? And I think that everyone now thinks they either can or want to be an entrepreneur, and that would be like saying we should all be. NBA athletes or race car drivers or surgeons like that's insane we can't all be that thing but for some reason there's this new um sort of like celebrity chefs 10 years ago yeah. yeah you know and it's like if you've ever met a celebrity chef you're like yep yeah, you're supposed to be a chef right? <laughs> you're you predisposed <laughs> you, you can't just your... decide to be a chef yes. yeah you're not you're not some like 48 friend you know 48 year old forensic accountant who's like I'm gonna become a celebrity chef like that's not how it works like they've been Baking and cooking since they were probably two years old and they have that mind for it and that passion for it. But for some reason, everyone thinks they can be an entrepreneur today. And and we've kind of, I don't know, I guess romanticized it to the point where no one wants to talk about the consequences because it does look so sexy. And you hear stories like mine told five years ago that made it look like, oh, 26-year-old kid starts company, it goes well. One of the fastest growing companies in the country. Makes a bunch of money. Magazine covers, TED Talks, sells the companies, private jets. Like, How cool is that? And every time I'd hear that, I'm like, God damn it. Like, If they only fucking knew, if they only knew what really happened when no one was looking, no one would want to do this, ever. And that's what kind of drove me to write the book, is, is to tell the other side, which is actually a very common other side. It's an ugly game. And this is not just entrepreneurship, but that's all. That's my lens. Um, if you talk to anybody who succeeded at an incredibly high level, it's an ugly journey to get there. It's rarely, you know, unicorns and rainbows. Like it's, it's brutal,
0: and and it can be frightening in the sense that you have yeah. that many people depending on you. Um, you ran a design firm and didn't actually know that much about design. <laughs> Nothing uh, about yeah, I, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's uh, one place you wrote. Uh, let me find if I could. Oh, here it is. It almost seemed as if the more ridiculous our approach became, the gimmicks, the insane bets, the ballsy strategy, the bravado and the unorthodox nature of it all, the better it worked. So yeah. you, were, you weren't running a confidence game or anything. I mean, you were making actual product and you had satisfied clients, but in the back of your head, you kind of thought you were.
1: Yes. And this was a daily battle that I had inside my own head because Okta, my business, was a very legitimate, well-respected Highly, you know, operating profitable company. But every day I was like, Have I faked it so hard that I've faked it to a level of success that I'm now not going to be able to own up to and live? And that's imposter syndrome, right? I'm not going to live up to what I created. And then we'd, I almost had this like self destructive mindset where I'm like, This thing is going to crash and burn. We might as well do it in a spectacular fashion. So I would make these wild calls like I I talk about in the book where we we rented this office we had I don't know at this point under 10 employees maybe eight employees it's like year one or or year one and a half like we're an early stage company and I rent out an office next to us that we did not need there's no need to have it and I purely did it to put two things in there a ping pong table and a poker table and I started hosting (laughs) illegal ping pong games for movers and shakers in Chicago
0: now I, I mean, gotta just it, double
1: check. Did you say illegal ping pong games? Yeah, you're no illegal poker games. Okay, yeah. So, so, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna the, say, the, man, the, the
0: Chicago the, rules yeah. are
1: tough. <laughs> yeah, Chicago's Jeez. really locking down, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so we, we would host these like basically like underground illegal poker games called the Offline Poker Club, and I, and I did this because I was like you know what like rather than spending our money like responsibly i'm going to rent another office which was a huge hit to the balance sheet at that point and i'm going to host poker games and probably lose my own money in the meantime and what ended up just because i was like fuck it i mean and this was after my coo told me that i couldn't rent a or, or buy a ten pound block of ice and freeze an ipad in it with our logo <laughs> attached to it and put it on michigan avenue he's like you can't do that so i was like fine i'm gonna host an illegal poker game and um And again, it was just this fuck it mentality. But what ended up happening is our next three major clients came from people who came to that game. We probably made a million bucks off that game. So it's like it just seemed like the 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 harder that I pushed on almost like goading this thing into failing, the better it went. And that was a very strange way to do it, I guess. There is a fine line.
0: I mean, you know, when you see these people who have wild ideas in their in their in their heads, and they make them happen. Uh, you know, Steve Jobs says everyone has a cell phone and seems perfectly happy with the cell phone they have. <laughs> right. I'm going to reinvent the cell phone. Somebody must have said what? No, that what? No, Nokia is going to win forever and ever and ever. Although I yeah. don't know anyone said a no to Steve Jobs, but <laughs> right. but yeah. there is a fine line between crazy and moving the company to the next level.
1: Well, it's not only a fine line; it all depends on the outcome, right? It's like, yes, it does. His, it, History is written
0: by the winners. Yeah. That's
1: exactly it. Because if the iPhone had crashed, he'd have been an idiot. Because it succeeded, he's a genius, right? So the idea isn't what dictates that, it's how well it ends up working in the marketplace. So, very similarly, if, if Okta, my company, had crashed and burned at month 18 because I was <laughs> egregiously spending money in stupid ways, I would have looked like a big, big idiot. But because it worked, and because we we were one of the fastest growing you know agencies in the country, all of a sudden I'm a genius, and, and that was one of those struggles mentally. You're like, this you know I would I would go home, and just I would have these insane mental fights, these debates with myself, being like, this isn't real. Like you 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 didn't do this on purpose. You're you're just getting lucky, and I would tell myself that because I was so scared as to. As to I guess believe that there was anything behind it i don't know it was a, it was a crazy mental space to be in
0: that anxiety created i mean some of the things you uh, are fairly predictable you've described situations mornings in Las Vegas that sound a lot like <laughs> the opening scenes of the hangover yeah. um, and, and that's and that's and that's fairly pedestrian i mean uh, <laughs> it is not uncommon is <laughs> to wake up in Las Vegas uh, wondering why there's a chicken in the room you know sure. uh, not totally common, but not unheard of either but you it got even it got more dark than that
1: yeah it got very dark um the the darkest years of my life quite frankly and and i've you know i think i'm predisposed to some levels of mental illness uh, especially depression it runs in my family um i feel like i've felt that since i was you know quite young in different ways but it really came to bear during the company because that level of risk and stress and pressure um, just isn't good for your brain, especially when your brain's a bit delicate to start with. It was it was pretty bad what happened. Um, so depression and anxiety led to substance abuse, you know, self destructive patterns. Um, just being very angry and very um, scared all the time, you know, wouldn't wouldn't sleep very well. Would pop up and have you know midnight panic attacks and. Taking a bunch of drugs for, for all reasons at all times, and ultimately, you know, it led to just a lot of partying and other behaviors that you know were were truly self destructive. Like towing the line of never waking up, or, or I should say, not waking up the next morning. Like that level of partying, which is not good, and um, and then having to open your eyes, you know, four hours later and go be a CEO. So it was a very difficult uh, number of years. You know, also amazing. Like also, you know, the company's working, and you're are a CEO, and, it's, and and like you're making money, while melting down when no one could see, and then you know, culminating with um, an actual psychotic break, like a mental breakdown that happened to me in year four, and that was, you know, the, the single worst uh, week of my personal life. It was it was pretty awful, and and it was a wake up call, and that led me to. Um, To want to go out and sell the company as soon as possible, and thankfully we were able to.
0: The sale of the company was directly related to your mental status.
1: Yeah, it was. Um, You know, we're in year four, and the company is now big, right? And we had just um, signed a lease for uh, I think a seven or eight year lease for. You know, tens of thousands of square feet in prime downtown Chicago. That was going to require a full build out. You know, millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars into this new space and the expansion plans. And we were now looking at um, West Coast offices, London offices. Like we were at that stage, and the business wasn't a house of cards, but it felt like it. You know, it felt like to me that one phone call and we'd be toast at any time. Like if that one client fired us or if that one key employee left or whatever. And if and it actually wasn't this unstable, but it just- I was going to so say,
0: that, see, that's a, a completely unrealistic understanding of your own Correct. business. <laughs> that's right. And, yeah. you know, that goes back yeah. to imposter syndrome. It goes back mm-hmm. to anxiety. That's so right. the listener needs to understand your company was very healthy with very healthy clients. And here yeah. you are <laughs> thinking it's all going to crash down around me any second now.
1: Correct. Yeah, and, and that was you know probably due to my own instability, but also just because you're just too invested in it. You're too deep, and, and you're thinking about it at every hour of the day for every reason. And because it was, it was my everything. It, it would if this company failed, that meant I would be failing at life for a very long time because everything that I had or would have in the future was in this business. So I had taken personal guarantees in the tunes of millions of dollars before I had any money at the bank account. Personal guarantees, meaning that I would have to find some way to pay that back even if the the company went bankrupt. Um, That could follow me around for decades, right? And it's not like I had a nest egg to fall back on. It's not like I had any any ways to to offset this. We never took a dollar in outside capital, ever, in, in venture capital, in any kind of outside investor capital. So this was all my livelihood sitting in this thing. And so the fear of this thing crashing and burning, which would mean you crashing and burning, maybe for the rest of your life, was catastrophic. And so I had convinced myself that this thing was so unstable that, that you know that it was going to cr- you know do that. It was going to crash and burn every moment. Which of course it wasn't, but it felt like that. And then after I left the hospital, um, this is now mid 2000 or late 2014, I just said I can't do this anymore. Like like if I don't. If I don't re- remove this stress from my livelihood, I'm not going to survive this. It was very clear that I was at that point, and so that led to hiring a bank, running to a managed auction, and um, you know, ultimately going out to the market with a very good asset. Like, Octo was a great business, you know, right. and it was it was clean and shiny and did great work and threw off um, a higher you know profit margin than almost anyone else in the space, and it was a frankly, almost a perfect business, and I could never quite see that because it just, it just meant too much. It was too much of my life inside this, this entity.
0: So the contract, the sales contract required for you to, to, to manage and, and work with Salesforce for quite some time, but that eventually runs out and you are able to leave the Salesforce building in Chicago. What street is it on in Chicago?
1: I actually, we were actually still in our offices in Chicago, so we didn't. Oh, right at the on. Sales so yeah.
0: I'm I'm from Chicago. So tell me what yeah. street.
1: So we were on Wacker. We were directly okay. across from the Merchandise Mart. Yep.
0: Oh, right on. Okay, yeah. I used to work at the Chicago Board of Trade. You uh, okay, so here you are. You're you're across from the Merchandise Mart. You walk out onto the street of Chicago. And you no longer own Okta, and you Uh, no longer have any commitments to Salesforce. Yeah, what is and the door slowly shuts behind you, or knowing Chicago, the revolving door comes to a stop. What do you do, or how do you feel?
1: I I can tell you, Scott, that was one of the single weirdest days of my life. And um, the way it went down is is you know I was I only stayed with Salesforce for about nine months, and then took my leave, Um, and the company had had slotted very well in. Everyone stayed. I don't know if I don't think anybody quit in those first like nine months. It was pretty amazing. Like it was a very successful integration and acquisition. And but I, I just needed to move on to my life. And so I did. And um I'll never forget it. It was Monday. We had like a going-away party for me. I, I I first told the team, so no one even knew I was leaving, which was very strange. Called a huge all hands. I announced I'm leaving. We have a little kind of happy hour. Um you know, do all the HR stuff, and then I went to dinner, I think it was dinner, with all my like, executives and stuff that night. And of course, we just drank a whole bunch and reminisced and everything else. And it was waking up that next morning, that was what you are describing. Open your eyes. I had set no alarm, because you didn't need to, right? And Break all of a sudden, there's no calendar, there's no assistants, there's no employees, there's no executives, there's no board, there's no emails, there's no text messages. It was unequivocally the strangest moment of my life. Um, and all of a sudden, you have nowhere to be. You have no one to to answer to. You have no one to talk to. You know, because my entire life was this business. Right. You had to even be like, well, who do you talk to now? Like, who actually are my friends that are not related to Okta? And what is my life not related to this company? And and it was a very strange thing. And I I remember being in like basically in pajamas and like shorts and a shirt and just like went walking in circles around Chicago, and it was as if I was seeing the city in in a way that i hadn't seen it in in years i was like oh shit look at that restaurant i was like wow look at that building like because you just don't do those things and i just walked around i'm like calling random people who hadn't heard from me in probably months or even years and they are just kind of like what's up man like i didn't know you you called me you know that kind of thing and and it was it was completely bizarre um and and it wasn't long later that I took off for LA. I just wanted to get out of Chicago and create some space and so I went to LA and and that just kind of carries on to the story of how I got to Greece.
0: <laughs> I want to end with this discussion that you are being so frank about with with mental illness or depression. Yeah. Uh you know, it my first reaction and I think everyone's reaction is how hard it is to feel sorry for someone with depression who's running a multi-million dollar company as CEO. Mm. Uh, yeah. I'm sure you got that reaction from, from some people, but it's also so rare for an entrepreneur to say this sort of thing. Uh, yeah. You know, it, we've gotten to the point where musicians and actors and even athletes will address this now, but not mm-hmm. entrepreneurs.
1: Yeah. Well, you just hit the nail perfectly on the head. And, and that is why I'm here doing this, because I don't see any reason that um, us as entrepreneurs or leaders, should be in a different category of vulnerability. I don't get why we are expected to be perfect or superheroes or not have these kind of problems. The stats around entrepreneurs are insane. 49% of us have a diagnosable mental health condition. Um, we're 10 times more likely to have bipolar, six times more likely to have ADHD, two to three times more likely to have both substance abuse or suicidal issues. I mean, it's we are flawed creatures. Um, and, and the reason... That we can be such ferocious self-starters is also the reason that our brains are a bit unstable, and you know all of that's fine. There's no, there's nothing wrong with being flawed and a bit unstable and a bit crazy and whatever. It's that we are then expected to be perfect when it comes to anything public. Um, if we have a problem, we're encouraged to bury it down. If we need a solution to that problem, we're encouraged to do that in private, and. You think of somebody like you think of like a you know a movie star like a Ben Affleck who you know who a few years ago said listen I'm a raging alcoholic I have to go to rehab and everyone's like great that that makes sense to us like <laughs> you go to rehab and we'll see we'll see when you get out and he comes out and everyone's like great you're back and he's in movies again and and he's you know and everything's fine like what makes us in this privileged or maybe unprivileged category of of needing to lie about our own humanities when the documented information about us is so prevalent and scary. So I'm really hoping that, you know, that I can create this this discourse and this dialogue.
0: John Roa recorded back in the fall of 2020. Since our last conversation, he's gone on to raise 15 million dollars in Series A for a new company. We'll have to have him back soon. Next week on Sand Hill Road, it's kind of a really good time to be pivoting from, you know, purely financial returns to growth and development returns.
1: Yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Well-timed.
0: Thank you, Scott. Michelle Gonzalez, head of Microsoft's venture arm, M12. Sand Hill Road is produced by Sean Myers, under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com.